0: So here we are on Easter Sunday, and as God's providence would have it, the text that we come to in the Gospel of John is the resurrection passage in John chapter 20. Now last week, if you recall, we spent quite a bit of time in Isaiah 53, and we saw how hundreds of years prior to the death of Jesus, God had laid out in a pretty interesting detail the aspects of Jesus dying for us, the suffering servant as we call it. But there's one verse that we didn't look at. It's the very first verse of Isaiah 53. Do you know what it is? The first verse of Isaiah 53 says, who has believed our report? The very beginning of that chapter starts with this sort of cynical question has believed this message. Well, as we look at this text this morning and see these friends of Jesus, we realize they didn't believe. We would love to think that they were so sure that Jesus was going to come back to life, that after the Passover celebration, Saturday night, they took a tent down there to the tomb and they pitched it and they just set up camp saying, oh, it's gonna be good. Soon as dawn comes, soon as sunrise, we're gonna see him. But that's not what they did. In fact, what we see is all of them come to the tomb, shocked that the stone is rolled away and that Jesus is not there. Now, to give them a little bit of grace here, Imagine what they've been through. First of all, there's just the thought that people who died tend to stay dead. So they, they, they were in shock. They were in grief. And think about what the last, oh, 36, 48 hours had been. Maybe not quite that long. They, all of them, Jesus' mother, his closest disciples, uh, these other women, the Marys and Salome and those, uh, his, his, his friends. Think about Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We They're not mentioned in this narrative, but you know they were aware of what was going on here. All of these friends, all of these followers, those folks who had been so committed to Jesus and so impacted by him, just saw him crucified on a cross, watched the, the torture, saw his body as it had been beaten not once but twice, or or flogged not once but twice, and then saw him brutally crucified. Of course, their their hopes that he would be the Messiah were dashed, but he was their friend, and they loved him. Think about Mary, his mother. I can't imagine what it would be like for her to see him on the cross. Then they have to quickly go off to Passover, They're Jews. They have to celebrate the Passover. So they take the body down, they they lay him in the tomb, and then they have to go celebrate Passover. And you wonder what that was like. They're going through the motions. The the father figure, the the leader is reading, or or at least reciting a portion of the Old Testament, remembering God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And we've probably all been there, uh, maybe because of a death of a loved one or some other tragic, sobering event, and and yet you're you're in this celebration, you're in some some ritual, some ceremony, some event where you're supposed to be rejoicing, and yet you can't get your mind off of the death, the the crisis, the hardship. It, it's kind of like an outer body experience. You're you're sort of numb. Your mind wanders in and out from whatever the activity is to thinking about the one who has died or the situation. Uh, Imagine these women, the disciples, what was it like for them as they're going through Passover? Were they pondering all the things that Jesus said? Were they just numb? Uh, Were they tying anything together with his death and this Passover lamb? I mean, they had just celebrated the Passover with him, and he had said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Were they, were they pondering any of that, or were they just so overcome with grief that they weren't really thinking anything? They were just feeling, just, just experiencing the agony and the, uh, the somberness of Jesus dying. We don't know. Someday we can ask them. Uh, but they were not excited about the resurrection. They didn't believe what Jesus had told them. So Friday night is when the Passover begins and they celebrate it until 6 p.m. Saturday evening. At first dawn, Mary rushes to the tomb. Now, as we compare the other gospels, we see that Mary was not alone or she went first and then went and the others came. We're not exactly sure how the timing of all that works, but John just zooms in on Mary Magdalene. And they're coming with spices, the the women are coming with spices to attend to the body of their Lord. And that's what we pick up in John chapter 20, verse 1, which says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. Now, I want to point out that it's the first day of the week. Remember, Jesus had said, I will rise again on the third day. Over and over again, the third day. But John here draws our attention. In fact, all the gospel writers do. It's not the third day. It's the first day. You can't help but wonder if he's not setting up the big event, the the resurrection day, the everything now is framed from this first day of the week. And as we know, the church began meeting on the first day of the week. And we, to this day, that's why we're here. That's why we're doing this service now, because it's the first day of the week. So, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb, it's early, it's probably before first light. John says it's dark. That's why it would be before the first light. <laughs> says it's dark. And she saw the stone taken away from the tomb, and she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, which we believe is John, the writer of this, uh, this gospel. Interesting to me. She doesn't go in to the tomb. Now, we suppose this is a cave that has kind of a low uh, uh, opening, and so you have to stoop in to see. We see that a little bit later. So she comes up, and and she doesn't even go in. She just sees that the stone is rolled away. Now, maybe she didn't go in and look because it's still dark, and maybe she could have poked her head in and not seen anything. We don't know, you know, again, the sun is kind of rising and we've all been there where it goes from pitch dark, it seems to a little bit of light, a little bit more light, a little bit more light and how quickly all this is happening, we don't know. But she she goes and she doesn't even go into the cave. She just sees the tomb rolled away and immediately assumes, oh, they've taken it away and they've stolen the body or done something to the body. Now, this seems strange to me, maybe it seems strange to you, but in that century, and indeed for centuries before and after this, grave robbing was a thing. You never know when you might uh, go into a tomb and find some gold, some jewelry, something that's worth some money. And especially, remember, this was a rich man's tomb. So it wouldn't have been unusual to find uh, that the body had been stolen and the, uh, the grave had been robbed. So she assumes that. She goes running to Simon Peter and to John and says to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two of them were running together, and the other disciple ran faster than Peter, And came to the tomb first. Uh, They say that uh, the winner gets to write history. (laughs) So I I assume, um, because he doesn't mention his own name, so John apparently thinks he's using a modicum of uh, modesty here. Uh, But he acknowledges that he got there first. By the way, side note, uh, there are people who think that John was younger, that he was one of the youngest apostles, and one of the uh, evidences is that he outran Peter to the tomb. I don't know. I used to think I was pretty fast, even uh, faster than some guys younger than me, but we'll see. So uh, so Peter runs, John runs, they get to the tomb, and it says here, The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings there, but he did not go in. So Simon Peter came, following him, and he entered the tomb. <laughs> This is exactly what we'd expect of Peter. John stoops down, he looks in, sees the, the linens lying there, there's no body, but he doesn't go in. Peter shows up, that's what Peter does, right? He goes in. He looked around, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So he goes in and he sees the the, the, the shroud, the 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 covering of Jesus. And then over here, it appears as though it's nicely folded and, and set up is, is set apart from the other pieces. Think about the other resurrection we have seen in John's Gospel. Remember when Jesus raised Lazarus? When he came out, it specifically says he had all of the the grave clothes on, including the head wrapping, and he came out. This is different. This is not like Lazarus. The body is gone. And there's his clothes. But you can imagine all the speculation this has raised over the years about the resurrection body of Jesus. We see later on he actually eats. We see that he can be outside a door in the upper room and then suddenly he's inside the door. And we assume that he went through the door, but it doesn't actually say that. It could be that he opened the door and Luke just didn't put that in. This one's a little different. He's gone and his grave clothes are here we don't know exactly what our resurrection body is going to be like but we do know that later on jesus is able to be touched he invites thomas to touch him in fact he still has scars in his hands we'll see this imagine it jesus still has the marks on his body there's no indication in the scripture that that body lost those marks of crucifixion i think we will see those marks on him someday but I'm going to have the story. Here, the tomb only has the, the clothes there, body is gone. So the other disciple who had come first to the tomb, that's John, enters also and he saw and believed. First one. He sees the clothes there and no body, and John says he believed. Now, one wonders just how strong that belief was. He doesn't get excited. He doesn't say, hey, Peter, isn't this great? He's risen like he said. He doesn't go tell the other brothers that he's risen, but he believed. A little more reserved. If it had been Peter, (laughs) if Peter had understood what was going on, he would have shouted it from the rooftops, but not John. And then John adds this interesting observation. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So it seems like John looks in, kind of stoops in and sees the clothes, and in his heart he's he's, he's, uh, convinced that Jesus is alive, but may not have been a real resolute faith, but the rest of them didn't understand. In fact, the next verse says, The disciples went away to their own homes imagine that if they had believed that he was resurrected there's no way they just run back to their homes they would have gone gotten everybody together and they'd have done a dance and they'd you know they'd have been celebrating of course they probably would have been wondering now where do we find him what's going to happen now but there's no way they just go back to their homes if they really believed they went back they didn't yet believe the scripture But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. She is just distraught. After all she's been through, this is Mary Magdalene, still, after all she's been through, seeing him on the cross, and now to think someone stole the body. Insult to injury. Why? Why would they do this? She's weeping. As she wept, she stooped and she looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels sitting there in white. Now again, she's, she's grieving. She's emotionally uh, caught up in all of this. And she sees these two and I guess doesn't recognize them as angels. She doesn't respond as though she thinks they're angels. There's one at the head and one at the feet where Jesus would have been, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Again, if she thought they were angels, she probably would have asked a different question. But at this point, she just thinks there are two people, and she's like, I don't know what they did, but they took my body. this You want to know why I'm weeping? All I can tell you is, this man was special to me. And someone stole his body, and I don't know where they put it. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Again, is this because Jesus' resurrected body is different enough? Is it because she can't even see clearly? Her eyes are so clouded with tears. You know how it is? You you swell up, and you still have water in your eyes, and and you blink multiple times, and you just can't get a clear focus, and she doesn't know. There's just somebody standing there. Uh, We know that later on, Jesus appears to the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they don't recognize him either until they're eating bread with him, and then they know. Is that because it was supernaturally hidden, or they were just so blinded by unbelief that? They didn't even notice that he resembled Jesus. We, we don't know exactly, but here, uh, Mary does not recognize the one who is standing right before her. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She thinks he's the gardener. And she says, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away assuming the best of him. Maybe he didn't steal him. Maybe you just, for some reason, took the body away. If you just tell me where that body is, I'll go and take care of him. Please, please, please. Jesus says to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher now she knows who this is think about what we've seen already in john's gospel jesus says to pilate i've come to bear witness to the truth and those who are of the truth hear my voice or earlier jesus said my sheep know my voice she didn't know it at first But as soon as he says her name, in fact, Jesus said, I know my sheep by name. And when he says her name, all the fog goes away. She knows who he is. She hears his voice. He knows her name. I grew up watching on the weekends the looney tunes love the looney tunes bugs bunny and friends oh they were great well some years ago i wanted to introduce my children to bugs bunny and friends and so i started looking online trying to find it, because i couldn't find the videos anywhere and except for paying an exorbitant amount of money so i thought surely someone's put this on youtube and i found one and i started playing and i hit play and i've got my kids there excited to uh, to introduce them to bugs bunny and it was about 30 seconds in maybe less. And I realized that's not Bugs Bunny. That's not the right one. This was some newer concoction and they use the same intro music, but it was not the Bugs Bunny I knew. I knew Bugs Bunny's voice <laughs> because I had grown up loving Bugs Bunny and i turned it off. It did take long to realize this is, This just not the same standard as those original Looney Tunes. So I'm still waiting for the day when Warner Brothers will republish those and put them out kind of like the Disney has done, opening the vault and all that. I knew the right voice of Bugs Bunny, and this was not it. Mary knows the voice of Jesus, and at first she doesn't hear it with ears of faith, but now there's no mistake. This is her Lord. And she does respond. Apparently, if we... Assume what what the next part means here. She bowed down to his feet, jumped on her feet in in obeisance, in worship, and hung on to him. Like, I lost you once. I'm not going to lose you again. Now, what Jesus says next is one of the most difficult passages in all the Scripture. Uh, It's very difficult to understand exactly what Jesus means. He says to her, stop clinging to me or stop touching me. Uh, It's the Greek word from which we get the word haptic. It means to touch. You you feel a sensation. He says, don't do that. And again, it doesn't say that she bowed down, but that seems to be the implication that she's holding on to him for dear life. And he says, stop, and here's the reason he gives for, for, the, for the command, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Stop holding on to me, stop touching me, for I have not yet gone to my Father. But go to the brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. So what does that mean? Why does Jesus give this instruction well, there's been all kinds of answers given over the years. Uh, one of the most popular is that what Jesus is saying is, it's okay, Mary, I'm not leaving you yet. So it's gonna be around for another 40 days or so, so so relax, let go, I'm not leaving just yet. It's okay, go tell my, my brothers that, uh, that I, I'm ascending. The problem is, it's not what he says, uh, I don't know, that may be right, but it seems more likely to me that what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I'm alive, but I'm not staying here with you. He's been doing this all along in John's gospel. Remember back to the uh, first miracle that Jesus performed. They're at the wedding ceremony, the host runs out of wine, and his mother says, Jesus, do something. They're out of wine. Do you remember how Jesus responded? Woman, what has this got to do with me? My time has not yet come. Kind of an indication that I'm not here on your schedule and don't get too attached. I must be about my father's business, and this is not it. It's kind of like the only uh, story we get about Jesus growing up. He's, what, 12 years old, and they all go to the temple to worship, and then Mother Mary and Joseph and the whole caravan heads back home, and Jesus is there in the temple and they they go a day's journey. We just read this this past week in our in our reading plan, right? They go a whole day's journey and realize that Jesus is not with them, so they come back and they find him in the temple. And they rebuke him and they're aghast that he wasn't with them and what does he say? Don't you know um, I have to be about my father's business? There's there's distance that he puts there between him and his mother and his father like I'm not yours in the way most children are. I'm here to do the will of my Father in heaven, don't get too attached to me. Remember he's hanging on the cross and he says to, to John, John, behold your mother and woman behold your son and uses that framing that, that woman, madam kind of it's a, it's a respectful term, but it's a distancing term. And I can can't help but think what Jesus is saying here is, I know what you want more than anything else is for me, now that I'm alive, to be here with you forever. That's not my purpose. I'm ascending to the Father. You have to let go. This is not the end. In fact, it's just the beginning. And I'm not here to be all that you thought I was going to be. I'm not here to set up a kingdom on earth and reign from Jerusalem. I am ascending to the Father. Mary, let go. It's not going to be what you thought. It's going to be better. You may not understand that now, but it's not going to be what you thought. He says, I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go to my brethren. I love that. Not go to my disciples. Go to my brothers. And tell them, I ascend to my Father and your Father. That's why we're brothers. Because we have the same Father, God. And I go to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. Next week, we'll talk about how they responded. So I said earlier that Isaiah 53 begins with, Who has believed our report? And that's the first verse of chapter 53 but this is one of those passages in Scripture that's really not a good chapter break because this section does not begin in 53 verse 1. It actually begins in 52 verse 13. The Scripture says Jesus will go on to say he will rebuke the disciples, the uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus, for instance, and the other disciples. He will rebuke them for not knowing that the Christ had to suffer and die Well, that's so plain in Isaiah 53, which we looked at last week. They should have known that. But he also rebukes them for not knowing that the Messiah had to rise again. That's in Isaiah 52. Here's how this passage starts. This is God speaking. Behold, my servant will prosper or succeed. It could be translated. He will be high and lifted up, and greatly exalted. Now, if you know how the Hebrew language works, when the Jews wanted to emphasize something, they used repetition. They had other means as well, but the predominant way they emphasized something was through repetition. Notice the three different ways, not just two, but three different ways here, God says what's going to happen to the servant. He will be high, he will be lifted up, and he will be greatly exalted. That's the point. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, in Israel and talking about their exile, so his appearance, talking about the servants, uh, Jesus, was marred. His appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. That's the cross. Thus, That's a very important word. That means in this way, in this manner. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. When this servant comes and is marred and dies on the cross, he's going to sprinkle his blood and cleanse not just Israel, but nations across the world. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. The cross was was the end of the work of atonement, but it was just the beginning of his exaltation and reign. Where he is now building his kingdom across the entire planet, sprinkling the nations, calling men and women, boys and girls to himself, granting them faith, and bringing them into the church. And he's been doing that for 2,000 years. So, what does that mean for us? First, he is risen. He is risen indeed. <laughs> He is risen. Paul says in Philippians chapter two that God highly exalted him, and that someday every knee will bow and every tongue of everyone, everyone above, everyone on earth, everyone under the earth, everyone everywhere, everywhere will bow the knee before Jesus Christ. So the first application is he's alive. He's our king. He's reigning, and everybody will someday bow before him. If you have not bowed the knee to him, do it today. Because if you wait until he comes back, it'll be too late to receive his work on the cross. Today, call upon his name for salvation. Be saved from your sin, saved from the wrath of God, and bow your knee and call upon his name today. The second thing it means for us is, we will rise as well. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I have not attained it yet, but I'm pressing on, reaching forward to the goal. And he doesn't say the goal is heaven. That's what we think about all the time. I'm going to die and go to heaven. When people die, when Christians die, we go to heaven. Yes, but that's not the end game. That's not the end state. That's not the future that Jesus has won for us. Paul says, I am holding on, I'm pressing forward, I am reaching for the goal, the resurrection. We will rise with him. We will get the same kind of resurrection body that he has, and someday we will live with him forever, not floating around playing our harps on clouds with pudgy angels, and certainly not as pudgy angels but we will be resurrected in new bodies and live in a new earth forever with Jesus. That is what Jesus came to do, to die on the cross for our sins and to rise again, to reign into rule and to promise us a resurrection. So church, as you celebrate Easter, as our world is being ravished by this disease, don't forget No matter what happens to us now, resurrection, our resurrection, is certain. Live in hope, live in joy, and celebrate today because, are you ready? He is risen! He is risen!